0: Joy has a certain frequency. Joy has a certain frequency that people can really tune into. And even if nothing else, at a minimum, you've had 45 to 60 minutes of joyful conversation. And don't we all need more of that?
1: You will remember this conversation with Julia Collins. You'll remember that she is fluent in joy. You'll remember that she's the only Black woman in history to build a billion-dollar startup even though she's conflicted about that status. But that's not what she wants you to remember. She wants you to remember that Planet Forward, her latest startup, is a powerful solution to climate change. Welcome to Brand New Blueprint. This podcast discovers mission-driven brands with inspiring blueprints for how to change the world. And like always, we talk to founders and CEOs while the paint on their blueprint is still wet. If you like that idea, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. I'm Ryan pintado Wertner. I'm a brand nerd. I'm an activist. I'm an investor. And I'm the founder of Smoketown, a boutique consultancy that helps mission-driven brands scale. This podcast is our way of celebrating what's possible. So let's get into it. Julia, welcome to Brand New Blueprint. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you for joining.
0: Oh, Ryan! It's so good to be here. I've also been looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, well, that means the audience is in for a treat, right?
0: Absolutely.
1: So uh, we're going to talk uh, in depth about uh, the business that you started uh, called Planet Forward, and you know what it's up to in the world of regenerative ag, and like we're really going to get into that. But um, I kind of want to take a couple of steps backward because you've got this amazing like entrepreneurial uh momentum that like seems to have like this that seed got planted that that like integer bloodstream way back like certainly not this is not your first rodeo in in entrepreneurship nor was your prior venture you've been in a serial entrepreneur uh for quite a stretch and i would love for you to just like start us out there how did how is it that entrepreneurship made it into your bloodstream
0: well I think the reason why entrepreneurship is in my bloodstream is because it actually is in my bloodstream it's literally in my DNA I come from like a long line of black entrepreneurs who against all odds were able to create businesses and some of them businesses that span generations you know it started on my um, grandmother's side of the business with the uh, grandmother's side of the family with a business called CH James Produce, which was one of the longest continually running produce and agriculture companies. Oh, wow. And then on my, on my dad's um, side of the family with, um, uh, you know, my <clears throat> a migration that my grandpa did moving to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area from the Deep South to start a dental practice serving the black community, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so I just, it really is truly in my blood. I think there's also just something about the experience of, you know, being an, an American, being a person who lives at the intersection of multiple underrepresented identities. You know, for me, someone who identifies as black and someone who identifies as a woman, there's something about living at that intersection that shows you all of the places where the system at large is just broken and so I think I've always had this sort of irreverence for the statics quo because I see and live and feel all of the places where our system is currently not working. And so I think I've just always had this, like, lust for reimagining things that aren't working for many people, including our food system.
1: I love that phrase, a, a lust for reimagining things that are not working. And, uh, yeah, that's a beautiful... That's a beautiful way to think about it. It sounds like not only do you have like multiple generations of entrepreneurship in your story, produce and therefore farming to some degree, it's or at least food, sort of writ large, is also in that bloodstream. Did I hear? Did I hear that right?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, my grandparents are from the deep South, um, South Carolina and West Virginia, and. You know, in both cases, oh, this is on my my dad's side of the family. You know, they came from agricultural backgrounds, and my grandpa, you know, decided to pur- pursue dentistry. But even as he migrated here, you know, he he brought with him his connection to food systems and his connection to land and his connection to food and growing. And like one of the first things that he did when he when he moved here was to build the garden for his sons.
2: Mm. You know.
0: And then on my grandmother's side of the family, you know, through CH James produce, you know, just keeping that business alive and scaling it over time. So I really do believe that, that this, you know, this passion for, and this connection to food systems is something that was carried intergenerally intergenerationally as my, as my family migrated.
1: Mm, mm. Yeah. Part like I'm, I connect with that in so many ways. Um, My, Similarly, my grandfather, my grandparents on uh, the maternal side, were like he was a farmer. Um, I think that, like by by contemporary standards, he might um, have like be have been described as maybe a sharecropper. Uh, you know, where he was working land that he didn't necessarily own. Um, and growing up, that the the centrality of food and the sort of like the the absolute clarity about where that food came from like all the way down to you know the bacon that we were eating was a hog in the slaughterhouse for the hog you know the hog farm was down like literally like six blocks away right so it's it was impossible to not you know have a a very clear sort of uh, uh at the level of my spirit uh connection to to food and that's that has stayed with me uh for for my entire life, uh, much mm-hmm. as it has, I can tell with you. And part of what um, you know we're going to talk about later on, but because we're it's come up, well, I'll sort of name it now. Part of what I think is is particularly poetic about what you're up to is that this context for the role of food in Black lives and the connection between food and Black lives is one that um because so many black farmers have lost their land over time our our connection to that as a people has actually weakened with each successive generation from you know from the pre great my Mi- you know great migration days to where we are now like that connection to the land that connection to the food system is um it has just gotten weaker and weaker and so when you know, people like you bring it back full circle. Um, I think that you know, like I'd be, I'd be all about what you're up to, even if there weren't that poetic piece of it. But the fact that there's that poetic piece of it um, just makes me, it, it, makes my heart sing. You know.
0: Mm, me too. I, I hear that, and I, you know, I, I see that the Justice for Black Farmers Act was just reintroduced as a bill. Ah. Um, and if it passes, it would transfer up to 32 million acres of land back to black farmers mm. and that would be Ryan like a, like a sevenfold increase.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: In <laughs> so the change is coming.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so in that, so we've established that you have a sort of DNA level connection to food. You have a DNA level connection to entrepreneurship and the first manifestation of that, at least from what I read was actually being in the restaurant business or were there actually ways that you did that even prior to that?
0: I I mean, it really was, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I was living in New York city. I was kind of working in sales. And, um, you know, whenever I had like two nickels to rub together, the first thing I wanted to do was to go to a new restaurant, Mm -hmm. you know, or if I had more than a couple of nickels to like buy a plane ticket and go, you know, Go to, go to the best restaurant in a given city. So I've, I've just always, even before I truly, um, ventured into, you know, food entrepreneurship, I just have always been drawn to anywhere where food is happening, oh
1: <laughs> anywhere
0: God. where food is being created, grown, even during business school, you know, that after I graduated from business school, I didn't go straight to my full-time job. I went to go live on a water buffalo farm in the south of Italy. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had met this amazing baroness, La Baronessa Cecilia Baratta Bellelli is her name. This beautiful woman, almost six foot tall. And I met her socially and she just said to me one day, Julia, you will come, you will come and you will stay <laughs> with me and I will, I will teach you, I will teach you about food. <laughs> and so I did, I went and I moved to this beautiful estate and I just, had a little job, kind of giving like tours of the water buffalo ranch, and then whenever they would let me sneaking into the kitchen to learn everything that I could. The style of cooking in that region was called la cucina povera. This really like, which has now become you know sort of like a celebrity thing, but this idea that you use very very simple ingredients to create the the, the tastiest most you know, satisfying food, that it starts with very simple ingredients just grown Mm. very well. And I don't think I realized at the time, Ryan, that of course, all of the principles that they were using to manage that estate were regenerative principles. I hadn't connected the dots yet Mm -hmm. intellectually, but spiritually, Mm -hmm. I felt very connected to this idea that the way that food was grown and the way that people in those communities connected to their food had had real outcomes for the health and the welfare of of those communities and their land.
1: Yeah. Yeah, That, that what, uh, what at first you were experiencing as like sort of in an intuitive level, kind of like love at the level of the spirit recognition that, gosh, there's gotta be some relationship between the way this food was grown or like the, the love that they have for this, for the, 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 harvesting and the growing there must be a relationship between that and how amazing the food itself is which of course you know in in, inter-science science figures out oh well actually there is literally a connection between those two things but before scientists had the wherewithal to study that um before even you know george washington carver sort of unpacked it for us sort of at the front edge of the industrial age it was it was already embedded in cultures that, that, you know, just valued how to raise food mm-hmm. to maximize its nutrition. They knew it intuitively.
0: They knew it intuitively. People are eating with joy and pleasure. Yeah. People are not holding themselves to diets or counting calories. And yet there are very low instances of diabetes and obesity, but f- few to none in the community that I was living in. Mm-hmm. People were living well into their eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is so incredible it isn't that there's anything wrong with americans there isn't anything wrong with who we are it is absolutely the food system that we're living under that's causing these disproportionate rates of 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 things like diabetes and obesity in our communities it has everything to do with the food system and not the people
2: yeah Mm
1: -hmm. and at that time when you had that um, what I mean, I'm sure that I'm not the only one. Everybody who's listening to this is like, okay, like sign me up for, for going to kick it with, uh, with the Baroness in, you know, an Italian villa, like ready, um, at the time though, after you had that experience, had you, um, had you already made another entrepreneurial decision, meaning like you knew that there was another business that you were going to start and you actually had identified that or not, not quite.
0: was the very beginning of my journey because after that I went to go work on Shake Shack. You know, oh wow! I like, didn't know that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I had a had an opportunity to just be an intern at that business. Um, very cool. And just have a little, just a little window into this, you know, incredibly interesting. At the time, this is 2000, sort of nine ten. This new segment or this growing segment called fast casual. Right. You know, this is like the beginning of Chipotle, the beginning of Shake Shack we were facing an economic downturn, but customers still wanted to have really great dining experiences. And so they were sort of trading down from sit down casual, sort of the Applebee's of the world. But many of them, even in this economic downturn, were trading up from traditional quick service, like the right. McDonald's and Burger King. So there was this new segment of the restaurant industry that I was really inspired by because I thought, oh my gosh, here's a, here's a place where we have an opportunity to create a better dining experience than what's happening in quick service with better ingredients and also meet customers where they are in terms of their desire for something delightful and delicious. So, so the fast casual segment of the restaurant industry was where I started to really build my entrepreneurial chops.
1: Mm. I had missed that step. That's a, that's what an amazing time to be there and what an amazing, like Shake Shack is, I mean, like they're, they're going to be writing books about Shake Shack, right? Like they, they just amazing entrepreneur, you know, vision, execution, timing, like all that stuff. Like, and, and it sounds like you were, you were there, if not at the ground floor, because I can't rem- quite remember when they started. You were there early enough um, that you got to really see some lessons learned.
0: Just to see a little bit of a window. I And to disclaimer, I can claim no credit in any way for the amazing <laughs> success of Shake Shack. The only thing I can say was I had the intuition to be in the right place at the right time. There we go. And to just understand there was something special there. And so that's really what led me to get into the Mexicu business, which is this multi-unit, fast, casual um, restaurant empire that's now a decade old and being run by my dear friend Thomas Kelly. And in getting Mexico off the ground, that's when I really had the experience of what it was like to build a multi-unit restaurant business from the ground up mm. um, and really like carrying some of the, the learnings from that time at Shake Shack, carrying some of my desire for food systems reimagination from Italy and productizing it around, around Mexico.
1: Yep. Yeah. 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 So you were, you were in the food service part of the food web or food ecosystem. Uh, for a stretch. And then you went from there um, to I, I think there were maybe there was a stop in between, but but you wound up uh, co-founding a company called Zoom. And yes. um, you want to sort of explain uh, what that was and uh, and what your connection to it was?
0: Yeah, I co-founded a company called Zoom Pizza. You know, I had been working, as you mentioned, in sort of the brick-and-mortar restaurant space at Mexico, at Murray's Cheese Bar, at these wonderful restaurants in Harlem called the Cecil and Minton's. And while I was at the Cecil, the restaurant actually won Best New Restaurant in America. So I had kind of reached what many people would consider, like, a really high point in my career as a, as a budding restaurateur. Um, but there was something, Ryan, that just felt like it was just unresolved. I, I had sort of felt like I had kind of figured out the brick and mortar restaurant thing, which is a hard thing to figure out, especially in New York city, Definitely, but it wasn't enough. And I felt like there were so many issues, intractable issues that I kept butting up against. How do we pay people equitably? How do we address food waste? How do we shorten supply chains? How do we reduce carbon emissions? Why are there cars, you know, huge trucks idling outside of my restaurant? Like Mm -hmm. there were these things that I just kept butting up against. And, you know, I I was just at a point in my life where I had this unapologetic desire to, to dream of something bigger. And so I decided to leave this wonderful life that I had in New York, move back to the Bay Area, you know, which is my hometown, San Francisco, and to co-found this company called Zoom Pizza where our mission was just to figure out how to use technology to create better outcomes in the food systems you know how to use robots and automation in the kitchen to reduce the drain on human bodies and to Mm. um, create a safer working environment how to innovate around packaging so that we were you know creating less packaging waste and reducing you know the the need to 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 ravage our forests for packaging Um, we looked at just almost every aspect of how food is grown and distributed and marketed. And it was a really creative and wonderful time for me those first three years at, at Zoom Pizza.
1: I can imagine. And during that time, you were part of a team and you yourself played a role in raising. in the number, every time I say this number out loud, You know, it's it's been published and like so. I trust the number, but I say the number out loud and I like think that I'm saying it wrong. Four hundred and fifty million dollars you raised over the course of that of that uh, time span with Zoom. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we we um, that is roughly the number. Um, And you know, I think that. When you think about the capital strategy for a business, you know, the capital strategy for a business should match the vision and ambition of that business. There we go. And we were looking at everything from automation to packaging to logistics to third party logistics to, I mean, and so our capital strategy matched the ambition and vision of the company. Um, but I will tell you, I, I certainly learned a lot in, in those years. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the insights that I gained during that Period of heavy fundraising, I've carried over to the way that I, I think about capital strategy or building a building an investor base. Now at Planet Forward, um, there were some good lessons learned there for me.
1: Mm, mm. And before I actually want to learn about those lessons uh, to the degree that you can share them, but before we go there, like I have to just celebrate the like what winds up being true as you know a founder of color. A woman in that raised four hundred and some million dollars and had a valuation that therefore went above a billion bucks and achieved unicorn status and that like that sentence black woman founder unicorn is not like though that can't be said for anyone else except you right which is an oprah winfrey level like head exploding Thing to say and and that must I believe like must be celebrated every time it comes up because it's just remarkable.
0: Mm. I so I so appreciate that, Ryan. I really appreciate it. And then you know, since I feel like I'm sitting with a friend, I can just keep it real with you. I have a very I have a very strange relationship to that fact. You know, to be the first black woman that's raised a unicorn valuation. I think the first thing is. Um, That just shouldn't be the case.
2: Exactly. There
0: are so many uh, genius level Black women building iconic businesses Mm -hmm. that deserve the attention and the capital and the customers. Um, And despite the fact that I think the venture community is making some efforts to get us there, I still frankly think that there's just so much systemic racism and sexism that is pervasive across every facet of our society, unfortunately, including venture. And so I still think we have a long way to go. And then that's why, you know, apart from, you know, in the, in the little bit of time that I have outside of working on Planet Forward, which feels like everything I have, <laughs> I do a little bit of angel investing and I, you know, micro target my investments to underrepresented founders. Yeah. That's what I can do, right? Um, yeah. I think the other thing is that, you know, Brian, I just fundamentally don't value myself based on the valuation of my company, right? right? What I really want to be known for in the future. The thing that I hope people remember me for is that I was a powerful agent for tackling climate change. Mm. Like that's the, that's the byline under my name. And so Mm. I have to keep working to get to that point. Mm. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. Beautifully, uh, beautifully said. Um, And I'm, I, and, and I'm hearing it with the spirit in which you've delivered it. Like, yes. Um, Let's go back to something that you Uh, a hint that you dropped that's going to be a nice kind of um, bridge here. You talked about lessons learned from having been, and actually not just from Zoom, but like the lessons that you've been accumulating over the course of each of those entrepreneurial ventures that are there, um, are there certain things that for you, and I know this is kind of a hard question to answer because I'm, I'm asking you to distill, you know, many years of learning into sort of like a few nuggets but are there certain lessons that really stand out for you that uh, as you started Planet forward you were very cognizant conscious like you know what I'm gonna apply this lesson here this lesson here this lesson there
0: yeah there, there truly are and I try as, as much as I can Ryan to like articulate them or codify them because I want so much to pass the hard-earned lessons that I've learned, you know, to other folks who are in the seat, whether you're raising for your company or you're raising for your fund or you're raising for your nonprofit. Many of us is just part of our life as founders and entrepreneurs that we are always raising. Yeah. It's just a fact. So I think one that's sort of like a a small hint that I a tip that I give to myself that has unlocked a lot more joy is to try to find a way to make the process of fundraising actually enjoyable for yourself, Mm -hmm. like whatever that looks like. Because if it's always going to be the case that you're raising until you reach some exit point, then why saddle yourself with something that's going to feel heavy and hard and terrifying? And what I would argue is that like, it's not that fundraising gets easier over time. You just get a, a little bit better at it as you do it more often, part of what makes me good at something is when I actually can unlock the joy in it. Yeah. So tactically, what that looks like when I'm pitching, if I'm pitching you right now, Ryan, before I even get into my business, I just start with a story about myself. Mm. I start with, it's, it's usually a story about my grandparents' migration and our connection to food. And it's a two minute story, but it gives me a lot of joy every single time I tell it. It makes me right. feel like my ancestors are in the room. There we go. So you just figure it out. If I'm, when I'm in a heavy fundraising period, usually I'll take Wednesdays as a day when I don't take meetings just to kind of recover and recoup. So like, I really urge people to like make joy a priority in your fundraising process so that you feel just more energetic. And I, I really think that you're going to have enhanced performance Mm. if you can unlock more joy for yourself. Um, Mm. Another thing that, you know, is on my mind, was on my mind a lot when I was thinking about capital strategy for planet four, just really on my mind a lot was how to actually create more equity and more justice on my cap table. You know, as a founder in the past, I think I had thought about equity and justice from the perspective of how I hired people, how I thought about compensation but I hadn't really, I just, I had sort of an aha moment with Planet Ford that I was like, I can extend that framework, not just to the way that I think about my employees, but the way that I think about my cap table. And so, you know, as I often do, I sort of dialed the needle all the way to the right. And I asked right. myself, what would, what, yeah. what would a radical look like? Right. Like not just a little bit diverse, what would a, what would a radically diverse cap table look like? And I was sitting with my friend, um, a wonderful investor named Su Chin Dong in New York and I was like, Do you think I could raise a round where ninety-nine percent of my investors are people who identify as women or people of color? And she said, Not only do I think you can do it, you have to do it and I will help you do it. <laughs> and she did. You know, if at the end of the day our job as founders <clears throat> is to, you know, return value to our investors yep. know, ultimately, then why not return that value to a radically diverse group of people?
2: Mm. Um,
0: so that's that's what I did at Planet Forward, and I think that's what I'll always do.
1: Mm. Mm. Yes, Yeah. So much to to uh, um, uncover on both of those two fronts. On that first piece that you said, a connection that I have to that that I, that story of sort of building joy um, into the process that I didn't even really um, think about until you just said it is. Uh, The way that I named um, my company, so the name of my company is Smoketown, and that name was terrifying when I picked it because no one guesses accurately what the hell this business is, right? Like it's none of the things that the word Smoketown cues actually have any relationship to what we do. Um, which, as a branding nerd, is sort of like you know mistake number one. like and I was terrified. but the the name of the company is tied to the neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky, where my grandparents lived, where my grandfather was raised. Um, he, my, my whole childhood was hearing him tell stories about Smoketown in Louisville. And so for a lot of reasons, it was natural for me. To name a company after my ancestors because so much of what he was about was potential and, and what I thought the company was going to do was unlock potential you know, among founders. So to, in my brain, the connection was obvious. in my heart, the connection was there, even though I was scared to death. And the joy thing that you just said is what turned out to be true is this totally sort of like uh, nonsensical name gives me great joy to explain and people pick up on the joy people like oh wait a minute this is not just your you know average you know founder story like this this guy actually gives a shit about the company he's built and 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 there's an authenticity there that i i I can be totally honest i did not intend Mm -hmm. uh but nonetheless it was there, which is I think part of what I'm hearing you say about like starting with that authentic story of like why you even care about the food system um put you in a place of personal joy, but probably also you didn't quite say this, so I'll just complete the thought, has the impact on the listener of whoa, like we're in the presence of a different kind of founder and a different kind of conversation. And I would have a I would expect therefore that it has a pretty positive impact on the outcome.
0: Yeah, it does. People, what did you say? People, people hear the joy. Joy has a certain frequency for sure. It has a certain frequency that people can really tune into and even if nothing else, if, even if, you know, ultimately you don't win that pitch at a minimum, you've had 45 to 60 minutes of joyful conversation Yeah, and don't we all need more of that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to, um, we're going to return to your second point about the cap table and uh, the remarkable thing that you've done with it. But before we do that, I think we probably r- have reached that point where it's time for you to uh, help us know what Planet Forward is. So, you know, what is uh, what is Planet Forward? What are, you, what are you up to?
0: Yeah. So Planet Forward is a company on a mission to help tackle climate change the way that we do that is by making it easier to bring climate-friendly products to market. Actually, the first idea I had for the company was that I wanted to build the U.S. market's first explicitly climate-friendly snack brand. Mm -hmm. I was at home with my little baby. We were eating lots of snacks. And I thought, what if for every box of snacks that I consumed, I could actually help tackle climate change? And I had learned about you know, the power of regenerative agriculture to sequester carbon and all the other ecosystem co-benefits. So off I went to create a climate-friendly snack brand and it was almost impossible. And it wasn't just hard, Ryan, because making tasty products is hard or branding is hard. Of course, all those things are hard and that's what you help people with that smoke Down, particularly on the brand yep. strategy side. It was hard because I naively thought at the time that there must be some like multi-attribute database that I could search and find out where ingredients came from, how they were grown, the outcomes of those practices. Only there wasn't. And I'm telling you, I searched high and low, just struggling as a small brand to find the data that I needed to make a more sustainable product. And this, I tell you this because this is actually how the Planet Forward software was born. It was so hard as a brand to improve the sustainability of my product because I didn't have access to good information that I decided that I needed to solve this problem for all food brands who are willing. So on the software side of the planet forward business, we're building a tool that helps brands become more sustainable and understand their carbon footprint by connecting them to high quality data and options for sourcing and sourcing ingredients.
1: Yes. And for those who may not um, like, we're going to get more into that. Um, but I- I'm aware that there might be people who, at this point, have heard us say regenerative agriculture multiple times, and they're like, not really sure what that means, or even if they have a vague understanding of what it means, they're not yet sure why that matters in the world. So, like, what is what is regenerative agriculture, and what why does it matter?
0: So regenerative agriculture is an approach to farming that allows us to restore the health of soil that's been degraded over time. Way back when, when indigenous people, Native Americans were in charge of the agriculture and managing the soil in our country, we had thick, rich topsoil, you know, sometimes six feet deep with all of this beneficial microorganisms and the soil was very productive and very resilient and very healthy. Unfortunately, as agriculture was handed, was stolen and, and, and in the hands of um, uh, the, the current agents of, of the agricultural system, we lost many of those practices and we started to supplement them with things like nitrogen based fertilizer, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, lots of heavy equipment. And we're at a point now, Ryan, in the United States and actually in many parts of the globe where we have less than 60 years left mm-hmm. of farmable soil, meaning that our soil has become so degraded, so nutrient poor, so absent of, of the healthy mycorrhizal activity that we're in jeopardy of not even being able to farm our soil. So regenerative agriculture is, again, just a repro- an approach to farming that uses practices like minimizing tillage, cover cropping, improving biodiversity, keeping roots in the ground year-round, some livestock integration, these practices that all help to rebuild the health of the soil. And as we rebuild the health of the soil, we're also helping to sequester carbon in the soil and in the above-ground biomass. And this is why people get very excited about the relationship between regenerative agriculture and tackling climate change because of that carbon connection.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then to connect this to uh, something we were talking about before when you were talking about being in Italy and that experience that you had of the food, what also turns out to be true is that, um, that like the richness, the nutrient density of the topsoil – is a direct ha, it, it, there's a direct relationship between that and the nutrient density of the food. And therefore, you know, I like I've heard stats that I'm not going to be able to quote off the top of my head, but if you compare the nutrient density and the nutrient value of a carrot today with that same carrot grown 100, 200 and 400 years ago, it's night and day. It's like in some ways not even the same carrot. Um so mm-hmm that 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 in addition to the the climate um justice carbon sequestering benefits of that of that agricultural approach it also gets us to a place where food can be the medicine and the healing and the you know the miracle that it was intended to be
0: it's absolutely right in so many cases we are solving for um you know long supply chains or cosmetically perfect food um, at the expense of solving for nutrient density, which is expressed in, you know, literally feeling better and getting more nutrition from the food you eat. I also believe that nutrient dense food tends to deliver more flavor.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so with Planet Forward, uh, the software side of it, so essentially Planet Forward, therefore, is – a software business, and it has a, you in fact did create the regenerative snack.
0: That's right. Moonshot Snacks, we launched in December of 2020. So Planet Forward is a snacks and software business where the Moonshot Snack brand is our first product. But the Moonshot Snack brand, Ryan, is also our first customer As I kind of mentioned, our first customers for the software tool, all of the pain points that we experience in creating an ultra-sustainable brand, we're solving for with the features that we're creating on the software side so that other brands have a much easier path.
1: And could you explain, um, like, literally what what would a founder's experience with the software be or a product developer? Like, how does it actually work?
0: Yeah. I mean, when we talk to food brands, they often tell us that they just want to know the best way to improve the sustainability of their products so that they can better serve their customers, so that they can serve future generations. It's something that's on so many people's minds. I think we even saw that with some of the Super Bowl commercials that we watched on Sunday, right? The gap that we see or the place where people are struggling is many brands are trying to figure out how to make sustainability a priority among the 20 or 30 other things that they need to do. Rather than how to partner with a, with an expert for whom sustainability is their sole focus, you know, but I really believe and we really believe at Planet Forward that a brand's impact, the scope of a brand's impact is really only limited by the quality of information that they have. And so what we need to do is to really make the expertise of sustainability something that's within reach of brands. So what do we do? We do things like, you know, carbon footprint analysis at the product level. We give brands essentially a nutritional fact panel instead of for calories and fat for carbon and carbon equivalents. So they can be exactly sure of their carbon footprint at the product level. We give brands a clear picture, a diagram of what aspects of their overall supply chain are the most carbon intense. Is it the growing? Is it the distribution, the manufacturing, the retailing? And we give brands a simulation for how they could shrink their carbon footprint based on taking some actions, like shortening supply chains, changing packaging, changing ingredients, or changing suppliers. So really giving brands a report card to tell them how they're doing and then a simulation for how to improve. Beyond that, we actually connect brands to real suppliers. So if you're looking for better sunflower oil or better flour. We've actually pre-screened a universe of suppliers so that brands can actually come to us when they need to find a source.
1: That's amazing. And is that, where are you in the launch process with that? Is that like a beta that's available right now or is that, you know, still to come?
0: It's still to come. We are in an alpha. We're calling our alpha, alpha. because there it's before go. the beta yep. right now um, with seven amazing brands. Um, some of these are uh, early stage and growth stage CPG brands. And some of these are just sustainably oriented food service brands. And we're doing this for them. We're giving them clarity on their carbon footprint at the menu item or product level and we're giving them access to pre-screened suppliers who meet our um, pretty rigorous standards for sustainability. But we're still early yeah. on. At, I think in a couple of months, we'll be in a position to open it up for a much bigger pilot. And so I would love, yeah. love to invite more people to come and try this approach with us. We just want to make it easy for brands to create more sustainable products. And we know how busy people are.
1: And, and then the other piece of that is that you also want to make it easy for consumers to shop by that value which today is, you know, I mean, maybe there's a, there could be like claims on a package that might signal it, but but the claims aren't really backed up by anything like the equivalent of a nutritional facts panel. So it's it's full from the supply chain partner all the way to the consumer decision at shelf.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, something like 50% of the growth in CPG for the last five years has come from sustainably marketed brands. So we absolutely know that there's a consumer out there who's hungry to just live their values in every aspect of their life, including something like how they snack. Um, But the gap, again, for brands is is often just a resource gap. So Planet Forward wants to be like a chief sustainability officer as a service um, for food brands who are looking to reach sustainable consumers.
1: Wow. There's the tagline. But like that's the that's the elevator pitch. Like, ladies and gentlemen in the in the audience, if you're trying to like <laughs> figure out how you get to an elevator pitch in one sentence, um, Julia just like put on a clinic. That's it.
0: Oh my gosh! Well, I just tried that out fresh out the gate, so I'm glad <laughs> well, it worked.
1: Well, <laughs> uh, it, it won with me. Um, okay, great. Yeah, that yeah. So. One I want to get into like one of the things that that uh, this podcast has is that we have an audience that has quite a few founders in it, and uh, one of the things that stands out to me and what you've built and what you're doing is, at least from the outside looking in, it it actually feels like you've started two different businesses at the same time, and those two businesses are actually you know meaningfully different from each other, and. I wonder, A, is that how you're experiencing it, (laughs) you know? And if it is how you're experiencing it, what's been challenging about that? And uh, are there some sort of like, well, let's just start with the challenging parts. Like, like, A, is that how you see it and how you experience it? And B, like, how challenging has that been?
0: I definitely experience this as one business with two products or one business that's a platform
2: business. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: But I will tell you what, when for every investor conversation I have and every advising conversation I have, this is always the place where people are like, you're, you're making snacks in software. Are you crazy? And how in the world are you going to pull that off? (laughs) So you are not alone (laughs) in, in asking this question. But I mean, it very much is the case that like the snack business is a reference customer for the software tool. So. When we thought about the pain points Mm. and we thought about the features to address those pain points, we really were building around an experience that was authentic to us and that we really knew. Um, But this isn't the only way to build a business. I I think what I'm learning is that our ability to execute, I mean, let's, I'll tell you this. So we went from a standing start in January of 2020 to product and market in 11 months, Mm -hmm. you know, from a standing start. so our ability to execute at planet forward is really a function of just the the people that that work at the company i think that mission-driven leaders who are building businesses that are tackling some of the hardest problems in the world have an unfair advantage in terms of hiring people Mm -hmm. i think you can get some of the very best folks in the world who could go you know make much higher salaries at much less risky companies um you have an advantage in hiring those people when you're a, 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 a mission-driven founder who's building a business that's tackling a hard problem in the world. So it really is about great people. And then, you know, we have all kinds of just internal tics, tips and tricks. We're definitely a process-oriented company. Mm. You know, we use OKRs. We use the Asana task boards. You mm-hmm. know, we are obsessive about documentation um, but frankly, you know, at this stage in all of our careers, I think organization is probably table stakes. It's the right. talent that's the big differentiator for our
2: business.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as you think about the things that you've done that that ha- have helped make it possible to run, like to build a platform that has two products and to have that and to have it operate at the speed that you just articulated sort of from standing start to you know minimum viable product or like a real thing actually more than minimum viable like the real thing is like up and running in the marketplace other than you know hiring a great team and having good processes, has anything else been particularly you know critical in what what make has made that possible, especially you know considering the fact that you know you're a working parent and you know you've got so you've got that other aspect of life that you're juggling
0: i think relentless prioritization um is something that i've really leaned into particularly in this period um since launch moonshot you know now that moonshot is an actual business with a product and market that brings a new level of intensity Mm -hmm. and relentless prioritization for me just you know really begins with being able to say no um to say no to things that are not critical for the business or frankly, Ryan, like going way back to the early part of the conversation saying no to things that just don't spark joy. Right. Mm -hmm. If it is the case that joy is my superpower as a leader, then anything that robs me of joy gets a really, really low priority and maybe we just don't come back to it. Yeah. And then I'm trying a new thing this month for, for all the founders out there called focus time where on my calendar, I block seven to 10 hours per week Mm. of focus time. I block them in minimum of two-hour chunks. Mm -hmm. And my team knows that these are like sacred times. We don't schedule over them. And I encourage everyone else on the team to schedule their own focus time as well.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good, uh, I've, I have, I discovered focus time and it 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 really does uh it really does make a difference um yeah gosh we 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 keep bringing it back to joy, and I think joy as the superpower uh is yet is another tagline like here we are like i'm like we're, we keep you know being able to sum this whole thing up in sort of like you know in a phrase, and I think that's another one like joy as as your superpower, and therefore um if it's not bringing joy then it begs the question, why, why am I doing this? Like there's gotta be Mm -hmm. a pretty damn good answer to that question. If, if joy is not in the equation.
0: Absolutely. And you know, joy wasn't always what my, my superpower, or maybe it was, but I didn't claim it. I used to think that um, hard work was my superpower. Mm. And I would sort of say, you know, I may not always be the smartest person in the room. I would say this, right. I may not always be the smartest, but I'll I'll outwork anyone. Right. And I wore as a badge of honor, particularly in my days when I was in the restaurant business, like, I haven't taken a sick day in three years. Right. I haven't had a, I haven't had a vacation, you know, and I would wear that as a badge. And I was very proud of that. But, you know, you reach a certain point in your life, you know, I'm lucky that sort of in my late thirties, I met a partner who I love and we had a child together and I just didn't want that, you know, working myself to the bone to be my superpower anymore. I had to find something else.
1: Right, right. Right. Uh, I want to get into, uh, because I, this is going to be a, a change of gears, because I am a brand nerd um, and sort of a consumer behavior nerd, one of the things that I've been really watching with what you've done, uh, you and your team have done with with Moonshot, is that you are, if not the, you're one of the first brands to truly lead from a consumer facing standpoint to lead with climate and to lead with, and and to like tell the story about regenerative. Like I can only think of a handful of other brands, all of them relatively young actually Mm -hmm. that have even attempted that. And I wonder now that you, and it might be too soon because, you know, as of when we're taping this, like you've got maybe a month of market sales and data under your belt. So it, you know, uh, tell me if it's too soon, but I wonder if you started to learn some lessons about what does it take to successfully market a brand and have as one of its core benefits to the consumer the impact on climate?
2: Mm.
0: The language is so important. The nuances of, of every word are so important in terms of creating a message that um, draws people in. So the phrase that we use around Moonshot is climate-friendly. And those combination of words seem to be unifying, no matter what your political affiliation is, Uh, what part mm. of the country you live in. And the strange thing, Ryan, it seems to be the case that no matter what you would currently say about climate change, Mm -hmm. the word climate friendly attracts and does not deter the phrase. Right. Mm -hmm. The place where we get, some friction and pushback is when we talk about climate change. Mm. Another unifying framework is healthy soil. Mm. That's a place, but but the thing that people love the most actually is that any phrasing that has to do with supporting farmers. Yes. Oh, it's been so fast. We didn't know, frankly, like which elements of our, We have our messaging. We have our brand DNA. We have our messaging hierarchy. But we didn't know until we got into market what would be the places that our messaging held together and where would it fall apart. And so that's been our experience so far, that things like healthy soil, climate friendly and supporting farmers are elements of our narrative that really draw people in.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's That's great learning. And uh, the the supporting farmers part in particular resonates with with me and what we've seen with some of our clients. Like there's, you ask the average person, like uh, to your point, blue state, red state, purple state, doesn't matter. Like, you know, boomer, millennial, you ask them, like, give me a short list of the people who you trust. Farmers are consistently... Somewhere in the sort of like upper quartile of that list, mm. it's just you know like, and that's even despite the fact that we, as a as a society, have modernized ourselves away like too far away from from the land, right? So even despite that, I think there's a recognition amongst a significant percentage of people that uh, among the few trusted institutions left are independent family farms, folks who's, you know, dirt's in the fingernails, it, you know, multiple generations. That's that's one of the, the the last kind of bastions of, you know, cynic free, you know, cynicism free, like trust. And given that your brand and in particular, the regenerative farming practice and the healthy soil that it creates, you know, ultimately unlocks, you know, a much better uh, value proposition for farmers. I'm not surprised that that, in, in addition to the other pieces that you've learned, I'm not surprised that that has popped for you so far.
0: Yeah. And you know, the wonderful thing is that we like, we absolutely back it up. Like we're working right. with a fourth generation wheat farmer, wheat farming family in Skagit Valley, Washington,
2: yeah.
0: you know, who's growing their wheat using these wonderful mm-hmm. regenerative practices, burying carbon in the soil. And then the wheat travels one mile down the road to Karen spring mill where it's milled by Kevin and his amazing team, (laughs) according to this wonderful spec that comes as a combination of his Italian American, Italian heritage and modern approaches to milling, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the, the flour 85 down miles down the road to Kara and her team at partners crackers where it's baked into crackers. So I think the way to, I guess what I'm saying is that the transparency into the supply chain and really like understanding who's growing, who's milling, who's baking our food. I think that's the level of transparency that builds trust with consumers. Mm. And it comes to light with something like a statement, like when farmers, when we all win, as long as you can actually back it up, but by creating value for farmers.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I want to, um, I'm going to take us back to something that you brought up earlier um, and 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 bring the conversation full circle a bit. You mentioned that you, uh, among the other ways that you're innovating with uh, Planet Forward, are that you've built an incredibly diverse cap table. And you know I have the you know honor of of being part of a venture fund, and we're in fundraising mode and are having exactly the same conversation about sort of how to intentionally construct the cap the, the, the cap table and, and build justice, equity, and inclusion into it. And I'm curious, uh, I, I was struck by the response that your uh, investor and, and, and mentor had when you asked, like, should I do this? And her answer was, you have to do this, and you can do this. Has it turned out to be, as um, straightforward and achievable as you, as you originally hoped and and envisioned that it would be? Or have you had to sort of, um, have there been some lessons learned just in the world of what it looks like to build an intentionally inclusive cap table?
0: Mm. You know, so we've raised two rounds now, and I think that the 99% number very much applies to the first round. But even in the second round of capital that raised, you know, we still, because we had laid that, I I laid that foundation of being radically inclusive. It was just the case that like from that existing very diverse population of investors, more diverse investors sprung up. Mm. So without setting that intention again for the second round, it was absolutely the case that again, the majority of my round Mm
2: -hmm.
0: were women and people of color, along with some amazing, amazing, super important allies. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is when you start from a foundation of radical inclusivity, it's much more likely that over time, that that continues to, to be the case, right? You're you're building the foundation and then everything that comes from that foundation is therefore going to be more inclusive.
2: Mm -hmm. I
0: think if you try to re-engineer your cap table later or make inclusivity a priority later, when you haven't laid the foundation, I could imagine that being more challenging.
2: Mm -hmm
0: not impossible and certainly important to continue to try to do but i think more challenging if you haven't laid that foundation Mm -hmm. i think from a tactical perspective you know just like messaging that that was my intention you know people are making soft intros for you like you know i'm really interested in talking to you know i'm really interested in meeting some black investors i'm really interested in talking to some female investors if you say that enough Mm -hmm. then people listen And so also, you know, at the top of the funnel, you're adding more. Um, But no, it hasn't been, it was far um, easier to do this than I imagined it would be. And uh, frankly, I I wish that I had done this um, sooner.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 And for those who, you know, may wonder why that even matters, um, like the, the way I think of it, is well actually you know what it's less important how i think of it why does it matter to you like why did you arrive at that intention in the first place
0: i mean first and foremost i believe that i am in a position to create wealth and create intergenerational wealth Mm -hmm. i I really i am on a mission (laughs) to get the job done um and because I'm working in the private sector, as I scale my impact, I will also scale my, the value of the company. Mm. And so if I'm about justice and equity in every area of my life, then in this very important area of creating wealth and promoting intergenerational wealth transfer, I need to be about equity there. So I think the first thing is just you know being aligned across all facets of my life or, or living in alignment with my values. That's first and foremost. But then there's also this other thing just from a, like um, a purely selfish perspective as a, as a black female founder, I just feel so much more trust. I feel so much more ease. I feel more seen. I feel like I have the ability to be more vulnerable mm. in rooms where I'm not the only black woman yeah. as I have been so many times in my past. Yeah, I can always perform I can always achieve mm-hmm. in rooms where I'm the only black woman. I've been doing that my whole life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I think actually I'm at my best and my most joyful when I'm in rooms where I really feel seen. And part of that is being in rooms that are more diverse. And so since I'm building those rooms, I want to build them that way. Like, for example, right. I had my first board meeting last week, um, my first board meeting for Planet Forward last week. And it's the first time I actually felt like I was really looking forward to a board meeting. Yeah. It felt like it felt a little bit like, like, I don't know, like, like a, like a wonderful experience of not going to see friends. Cause they're my investors, but going to see like a panel of people who are really on my side and want me to win. Yeah. And it didn't have that dynamic or that energy of proving or performing. Yeah. And I didn't feel at the end, like I needed to like, take a shot of tequila, like, Ooh, that was over (laughs) actually the meeting ran long and we all just kind of wanted to stay. Yeah, And it's just, you know, by virtue of like being intentional about creating inclusivity in that room, I, as a founder was able to step forward in my real authentic self. And I think the business will be more successful. Planet forward will be more successful because I really am able to lean into the help that's available to me through my investors, because I'm able to lean into more vulnerability with them because I feel more seen by them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. As always beautifully put. And uh, one of the things that uh, you, you you described it as joy, which is, um, is the through line uh, to this conversation. I, I was, I was thinking of it as um, that that need the the ability to perform like what's true for so many of us who are the only in the room is that our ability to perform is not really the the problem the problem is perform at what cost the problem is is when you're not seen when there's no room for vulnerability when there's the extra layer of weight of uh that, that that all of that all that comes with um sort of the the way uh racism and sexism and you know homophobia are brought into a room uh, when you're the only of any of those kinds uh it's it's yes we can perform but perform at what cost uh to ourselves personally emotionally and 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 at what cost of joy so uh that i am beyond thrilled that the you know i don't want to call it an experiment but unfortunately it's the only word that, that that comes to me the the sort of like intentional experiment of like what will happen if i build you know the board that that will give me joy that in fact it has has uh blossomed and and bloomed that's uh, that I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And, uh, and thank you for sharing that story. I think that's going to, that's going to touch a lot of folks who are listening to this.
0: Yeah. I think as founders, we have so much more power in some cases than we even give ourselves credit for,
1: Yeah, you Amen. know,
0: we have more power and influence It can, particularly when you're fundraising, it can feel like you're kind of at the whim of the market sometimes, yeah. but actually that's another mindset shift that you can yeah. do with yourself is to kind of lean into the places where you actually do have some influence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of this amazing business, um uh, that you've created, I've taken a lot of your time and you actually need to like, literally go run that business. <laughs> um, I want to just close out with, uh, with thanking you for the time. Thank you for, uh, sharing your joy with us and, and giving us a path, uh, to creating more of it uh, for ourselves. And And thank you for, for uh being a trailblazer and what it takes to uh to bring climate justice back to the center of of sort of how this economy works so i yeah uh, thank you so much
0: well thank you for having me ryan thank you for just your continued support of me and of planet forward and of moonshot and it was a joy it was a joy to be here
1: If you enjoyed this episode, help other people discover us by giving us a positive rating and review. You'd be surprised how much that helps. And of course, become a subscriber yourself. Now, one last thing. Go to your music streaming platform, find a hip-hop group called The Regulars, and listen to more of their music. They made this theme song.